What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Fast Track, formerly known as Pave the Way Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Helbeck, and on this show, you are gonna learn exactly how to be successful as a real estate investor. It doesn't matter if you're brand new or if you've done dozens and dozens of deals. This is a podcast you're gonna be able to listen to that's gonna give you actionable, specific advice on how to be successful within real estate investing. I'm gonna interview top-notch real estate investors each and every week, and there's also gonna be some content that is just gonna be me telling you exactly about my journey and how I've went from a broke kid starting out to a million dollar real estate investor. So if you wanna learn how to be successful investing in real estate, this is the show to listen to, and I'm looking forward to being able to serve you at a high level. All right, Agi, the residential rental property expert with our monthly series here. We talked a lot about buying properties, how to do the Buran steroids. You know, we covered all that on previous episodes. Now we're going to talk about you have the property, you got the thing refied, you're trying to get renters in there. How do we manage these assets over the long term so we can be successful? Because the reason I'm bringing this up in the beginning, Agi, is because I see a lot of people they buy rental properties and then they absolutely can't stand the management and they end up selling them and they squander their wealth they can make over the long haul. But if you get this step figured out and you can get the management really optimized, it's going to make your experience so much better. And you happen to own a property management company out in Phoenix. So you certainly know what you're talking about when it comes to this. Stuff. Yeah, my, my situation is quite unusual. You know, I have the, the point of view of an investor, landlord, property manager, owner of rental property. So kind of a, I can give you quick different advice, you know, advices uh, as far as managing the properties by yourself and what to look in a property manager procedures when, if you're going to hire one. hundred percent. Cause Lord knows there's a million property managers out there and you know, Oh man, the level, the level of service is so low. The bar is so low. It's, I always say this, like we, we had a tough business month in July and I was like was talking to Brett. I'm like, you know what, man? It's really not that hard to be successful. You just can't be a complete idiot and do what you say you're going to do and have decent systems. And it's almost like over the long haul, it's like impossible to not be successful. Be nice to be people. Cool. And be yeah, a good be person, cool. You know, forgive you for making mistakes. Exactly. So let's let's start with this. This is a, a you know very privy to some of these tougher markets, like where it comes to landlord tenant laws, screening tenants. Because I see at least in New York, where I do a lot of my investing. It's very difficult to get people out. We'll cover the evictions, obviously, later on on the show. But what do you look for as a property manager, as an investor, landlord, in terms of screening tenants? Like, What are the things that you look for to make sure that tenant is really qualified to live in that home? Man, there's so much stuff. But let's try to get the most important thing. Like yes. everything else, we have to do a background check. That's the first. And when you do the background check, what's the most important? What to look for? So let's say you run the background check and usually it, either your property management company does it or you go online. There's already these services that they can do nationwide screening on tenants. You pay maybe 25 bucks or there's always in every market, in every city, there's a local person, local guy that does screening for tenants. And the local guys, they are always better in running background checks for you guys. So look for someone in local in the market. So we have some here, like, but here's the problem. They don't work on Saturday and Sunday. So, you know, we have to give up a little bit things. And then the, the screening takes 24 hours, not 24 minutes, like some of the nationwide screen, but the screening is better. So when you get the background check, what to look for? 
bad credit. We look at bad credit, but we we look for overall, what's the financial background of the person? Have they have a lot of payments, a lot of history of not paying, a lot of debt and things like that? So that's one thing. Bankruptcies. So here's the thing. I don't care about bankruptcies. If a bankruptcy has been filed and closed, then it's good, which means that the person cannot file not a bankruptcy for a certain period of time. Sure. Then you're safe. Because if a tenant files bankruptcy during the tenancy that is in property, you cannot talk to the tenant. You have to wait your day in court. So it, it could take some time. The other thing is, in addition to the background check, you know, felonies, things like that, big no-no is previous evictions. Interesting. Evictions is absolutely no go with us. Absolutely no go. Bad credit, bankruptcies, short sales, foreclosures, it's fine. We can overlook these things. Eviction, absolutely not. You already proved that you, you don't care about your previous landlord. That means that you're not going to care about me. So you're absolutely done. No eviction. So okay. if your tenant listening, do not do evictions because you're done with all the property management companies. It's so obvious at that point. It's like they've already been evicted. Yeah. It's going to happen again. History repeats itself, as they say. Yeah. It's showing that you have no respect to the landlord. So, And it's public record. <laughs> yeah. You, you're done. You're done. What is the income rule of thumb that you look for? Let's say the rent on your property is $2,500 a month. What is like the minimum income you're going to look for to make sure that that resident can actually afford the property and, and be successful paying the rent? Right off the bat, most property management companies will tell you three times the rent. Monthly. Monthly. But this is what I'm implementing right now in our property management company. We are basing the properties on A, B, and C quality properties. A, B, and C based on how good they are. A, luxury top of the line, the best property in town. B, your average property that you can find everywhere. C, maybe an apartment in a little bit um, transitional area. You know, the building is not that great. So in all these three, it's different type of properties, different type of people that are going to apply for these properties. So on A properties, I want the maximum income possible. Let's say if we want on a B, which is the average, three times the rent, on an A, I want four times the rent. Okay. So you want to make sure that person can really financially. Yes. Four times the rent. And I want, you know, more security deposit. You know, I, I get bring the level up. The barrier goes up on A properties. Sure. On a B properties, the average, everything's normal. Three times the rent one-time security deposit, things like that. But when we go down to the C properties, we're understanding that we might be getting people that with lower income overall. So then we can lower the barrier to two and a half times the rent. For the C properties? For the C properties, yes. So whatever you decide to do, the rule has to be across the board on all your portfolios at every single time. All the A properties, one rule. All the B properties, one rule. All the C properties, one rule at any time because you might be breaking fair housing regulations if you have different guidelines for different C properties. So, sure. so to answer your question, 
it depends on the property. So if you know if a property is C property and your tenants tend to be a little bit lower income, then you can go with a lower income requirements. The lower standard because you know that the the, the yes. scenario is like they're probably not going to be making four x the rent if they're living in a C property. Exactly, it's it's fair. So okay. the other thing is you have to look for is call the previous landlords and ask questions. They are limited to what they can answer because of privacy laws and things like that. But the main questions that you can ask and get a really good idea how the tenant is that they can always answer is, would you rent to this tenant again? Mm, that's a nugget right there. Yeah. To this tenant again. Yes. The other thing you can ask is, do they have any outstanding balance with you? That's, I mean, that's good to know. What, what about calling the landlord before the, the, what if you call the, the second land, like the landlord before they went to their. Yeah. I mean, yes. Anybody can get on the line. Just get them. To, so I, that's what I do normally. I'll basically have their, their previous landlord and then the landlord before that. And I actually mm-hmm. call the, the, the older, the oldest one first, because they usually have like, I'll give you an example real quick. So I had a tenant I evicted. They were just really, I inherited them. They were bad. So when they moved out, their landlord called me their new landlord called me and I was evicting them. And I mean, this is just a fact of the matter. They were like, what are your thoughts on this person? And I was like, well, when they paid, they usually paid on time. When they paid, comma, they usually paid on time. That's true because you have to be careful what you're disclosing. Exactly, exactly. And I didn't want to shoot myself in the foot, but I also didn't want to like have the landlord not rent to them because of, you know, so I said, when they paid, they paid on time. They seemed like nice people. I think it potentially could be a fit. I was very vague, right? And the reason I was vague is because I wanted them out of my property and exactly. I wasn't going to let this, because I knew the landlord was going to call me because <clears throat> like they had to do that. But it's a little bit of a slippery slope when you're evicting. We'll get into that in a minute. But like you you, you, you want to be vague. You don't want to be too you know, detailed with people. So that that's all good stuff. So we, we want to make sure we have reasonable expectations based from their income based on the type of property. Background check is huge. You know, bankruptcies could be fine, especially if it was a long time ago. And you want to definitely stay away legally in your state if you can, you know, not rent to someone who's already had an eviction before, because that's just the you know, history repeating itself. Let it's me too- give you a few tips. Sure. Just when you talk to the tenant, really quickly over the phone, how to figure out if it's a good or bad. Sure. First red flag is. If the tenant calls you and says, I want to move in tomorrow, this urgency, there's something wrong with it. There's always kind of a sob story behind it. So if they want to move in tomorrow, that's a that's a red flag. Be very careful. Second thing is, if you set up an appointment with the tenant to come and see the property and the tenant is late quite a bit, they already showed you that they're not respecting your time they will not respect you during the tenancy. That's a red flag too. Also, another red flag to be careful is if the tenant gets paid in cash, no pay stops. So that's another thing. There's no way no way you can prove it. There's no way you can garnish salaries later if they default on anything. So be very careful. Actually, lately we've been starting getting fake statements. And yes, yes, everything fake. Photoshop is it's very popular, but technology is catching up. So our software detects fakes. And when they report income, there's a national database they can check the, the income if it 
if it matches and all stuff like that. But so the point is also be careful with fake statements. Okay. Interesting. Let me ask you this question about that. So I have a property, actually, I burr on steroid at this property and I did, I did rent to this tenant and so far they're all right. They didn't have any credit because they're new to America. They don't speak English, which like I said, I don't care about, like it doesn't matter to me. So the collateral, AKA their credit was something I needed to, that was a problem for me. So the broker that I had rented, I said, listen, I'll rent to these people, but I need somebody to co-sign this lease with really good credit. And I need that as collateral. So yeah. they, they ended up, you know, getting someone who was qualified to basically sign on their behalf and put their credit up as collateral. Basically, we made an exception to that rule because we had that person had that skin in the game, but they didn't have the person who's living there didn't really have a great backing because of the credit. They just didn't have it. So, I mean, what would you, in, in would you have rented to that person if it was a scenario of me or would you kind of been like, eh. without, no, without a co-signer, no. No, with the co-signer. Like oh, the, yes. With Chris, the co-signer is fine. Yes. That's I mean, fine. everybody deserves a chance. Then when That's you meet the people, thinking. have a conversation. Usually a lot of some of these people come with cash and they usually don't want any trouble with the law and evictions and things like that, especially when they're new to the country overall. That's I, I speak out of experience. I was the same way when I came here 20 years ago. Yeah, you got to give people a chance. And I was like, I was a little like, eh, but then I said, you know what? They seem like nice people. They, they, it's a nice home. You know, it's really good shape. I said, you know, if they put the co-signer there and their credits on the line, they paid, they pay right away. They're very easy to deal with, knock on wood. And, yeah. uh, you know, I was, I was just happy to give them obviously a, uh, a chance to, to live in a nice home in a, in a decent, it, it was a BC property. I can't say it's I better. mean, there's always exceptions to the rules and what can you do, you know, but uh-huh. here's the other thing. Be careful when you do exceptions because you can, you can get sued later. So now if you get another property, a tenant with the same situation and you deny this tenant and they sue you and they come and say, Hey, but this property allowed in the same situation, this person to, to go in, but you're denying me yeah. for the same reason, you're breaking the fair housing rules. That's and re- regardless if you're licensed, not licensed, property managers, managing yourself, you're subject to the fair housing rules. 100%. Yeah, you got to be careful. You, and you got to work. The, the Here's the main point here. You got to work with someone who knows what they're doing. Property management company, leasing agent. Or if you're doing it yourself, you need to really be educated because there's a lot of red tape when it all across the country. It doesn't matter if you're in a landlord state or a tenant state. It's national laws or national laws. So let's let's cover now. Let's transition into we have the property rented out to a qualified tenant who's grateful to be living there. How do you handle ongoing property maintenance once a tenant moves in in terms of having reasonable requests come through and avoiding this property being like a constant burden for the landlord or for the tenant in that matter. And property manage, uh, maintenance is the biggest issue for everybody and the biggest issue for property managers. That's where most property management companies fail and property managers fail also. Interesting. So you have to set up some few rules. Depends if you're a property management company or you do it yourself. But Let's come up with some, some, some basics that you can reduce your maintenance expense. So yeah. first one is regular inspections. That's what most of the property management companies and the landlords don't do. As far as they get the check, the rent on the first, they don't care. They're like, oh, my God, great tenant, 
five years, he hasn't missed a payment. Have you seen the property? No. Okay. Then they move out. You go there, $15,000 of damages. Yeah, they paid on time, but whatever. So in our property management company, the rule is, first, we guarantee the tenant, of course. And if the tenant does anything, we have to replace it for free. So we are very careful. But when we get a tenant on the third month of the tenancy, we go and inspect the property. First, you want to show to the tenant that you care about them having a good property. You check the property and make sure nothing is health and safety issues. But at the same time, you check if the tenant, they are who they are, they didn't have any extra people or pets and things like that, and to see how they treat the property from the very beginning. Got it. So if you get something right in the first 90 days, then you can react. Got Second it. thing is, do not renew the lease until we do inspection on the property. So three months. On the 12th month, tenant says, I want to extend for another 12 months. No problem. The property manager, our property manager goes there, does inspection on the property. If there are any damages done by the tenant, the lease will not be renewed until that is fixed. So this way, you keep the maintenance on the property ongoing. You don't lump it up at the end and have huge expense. You just do it as it goes. You do it in batches versus waiting till the end and then having this huge. Exactly. Rule of thumb, one rent per year should go into the maintenance of the property. Roughly. If you haven't done anything for five years, you're going to have five rents that, that will go into the property. The other thing is, once you get a call for repairs, if there's small stuff, just don't go. Don't go and fix it. If it's something can wait, just put it on to-do list and then combine a few small orders in one going or push them towards the renewal. When you do with other stuff, do another small stuff because most of the expense we have is labor. If the repair is cost 25 bucks to for the material, you're going to pay 100 bucks for the trip for the handyman to go back and do it. So if you combine few of 25 bucks repairs and you pay the handyman one trip of 100 bucks, they can get it done quickly, you're going to be saving money. You're saving money. And you're not delaying, so, you want to delay these repairs. That's where I see people really get in trouble. So this comes, so every time you get a request for repairs, call the tenant. What we do, we call the tenant and we try to troubleshoot it over the phone. We get pictures. We want pictures always. Regardless if if you're going to troubleshoot it over the phone or you're going to send it to a vendor to go there, you want to have the pictures and a good explanation so the vendor do not have to do multiple trips and charge you more when you tell them, hey, this is broken. This is the picture. This is what. And the vendor, by the explanation and by the pictures, they already know what materials they need, what instruments they need, and so they can fix it quickly and more efficient so you don't have to spend a lot of money. Mm. No, that yeah. makes sense. You're doing it efficiently, yeah. especially at scale. Yeah. Troubleshoot it over the phone and try that. The other thing is we do not, absolutely do not take work orders over the phone. Stop doing that. Oh, even the tenant calls you with something, say, hey, hang up, send me an email or text message, you know, if you're self-managed. We, are, we have an online CRM that the tenant has to log in and submit a request for work sure. order. Everything is stamped, date, 
our explanation. They can upload pictures and everything so we can work it out. The big thing here is lease agreement is done properly. You're going to have a, a sentence where it says that when the tenant requests maintenance uh, repair, automatically give you a permission to enter the property. So this is a big thing because regardless of any, any request, you have to have permission from the tenant to enter the property. So if you send a, a vendor without permission and vendor goes there, tries to go in and something, it might be, get you in trouble. Yeah. So do not take anything over the phone. Always, even if you have a conversation with a tenant, ask him to put it in writing. Text message, email, whatever that works for you so you can have a stamp and pictures. And um, try to use handyman. We, tr- we have an in-house handyman that we reduce the cost significantly by using yeah. handymans. We don't want, we don't say like a, if it's a small stuff up to 5,000, we have a licensed handyman to do it. We don't do like a licensed plumber or licensed electrician or licensed something, you know, sp- specialist in something uh, if we can avoid it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And most stuff is only is really handyman kind of stuff, at least from my experience. It's like, you know, moving in a washer or dryer or changing out a broken door. Like- it is most of it. So you just have to have different people for different things. So this is how we pick our vendors. This is how you, you would pick your vendors. There's three types of vendors. First vendor is the single guy, the professional that does it himself. Chuck in the truck, he, I call him. Yes. He's really good in what he does. He can talk over the phone. He, he can do it the best work at the cheapest price. But he's busy. He wants to get paid immediately. And he's not good with paperwork. So you might have to chase him with for invoices and things like that. They're not very organized business-wise. No, that's so true. So the next level is mom and pop shop. And these are like the professional with a helper and an office person. So, you know, this is a little more organized You get, you know, it's a little bit more expensive, but things are getting done quickly on time and bigger jobs could get done with mom and pop shop way, way better. So you just have to pick. And the last one is the the big company that advertises on radio that, yeah, call me, we'll, we'll fix this any time of the day. Avoid that. Don't even call them. This is like two or three times the regular price is just robbery. So use single guys, handyman, or mom and pop shops, they will be the best. Depends on the, the, totally. the size of the, yeah. The other thing you can avoid the maintenance to reduce the cost is in the in the lease, put the tenant is required to take care of any filters and any bulbs in the in the property. And you, the lights go out and bulbs have to be replaced, it's the tenants. Another thing that in that matter, landlords tend to put rules when they do it themselves is that up to a hundred bucks of repair, do not call me. You're the one responsible for that. You do the work. Sure. So there's a couple problems with that. I would avoid it if I if you could. First, the tenant will try to avoid in any way to spend money on your property. So they will not, they're gonna ignore this until that $75 repair is $750 repair. They're yeah. gonna uh, they're gonna avoid that. So, if you put it on the tenant, hundred bucks is too much. They're gonna not gonna do it, and it's gonna be too many things at the same time for you to fix later. And the second problem with this is, if you allow the tenant in any situation or ask the tenant to do any repair on your property, and that tenant gets hurt during the repair, 
Yeah. You're responsible. And the tenant, even the tenant had no idea that he can sue you, he'll go to an attorney and the attorney's going to sue you. Oh my God, perfect situation. So we got a uh, rich landlord and a pissed off tenant. Let's get some money. Yeah. So that's a little problem. But try to avoid that if you can. It's not a good practice. Another thing I'd say too is like if you're a landlord, just use common sense. Like if it's something doesn't smell, doesn't pass the smell test. You, you got to understand that you, you got to use logic here and you got to, you know, well, a lot of like mom and pop landlords, they just don't use their brains and they get themselves in these quagmires. So, Augie, we got so much stuff we're covering. How about we do this? I want to cover one more point, but there's so much more stuff I want to cover with you. We're going to do a part two episode on this where we'll cover okay. more stuff because there's just so much value here. I want to keep these episodes, you know, 30, 40 minutes so everyone can listen to this. So we're going to cover one more thing on this episode. And then we'll actually schedule a part two and we'll go even deeper because I just feel like this is such a relevant topic to people who follow our show. I feel like we really want to bring them as much value as we possibly can. So the last point in today's episode I want to cover is at the end of the day, when it comes to vacancy reduction. Now, this is something where, you know, it it just kills landlords. It just kills them. They just they have this constant turnover. So. What are some tips you have for the listeners on how to really reduce vacancies and how to avoid these long turnover periods? Okay, so let's start with the first most common thing is pricing. When you leave tenant leaves, you want to list the property vacancy. Yeah. Don't overprice, don't test the market. Sure. And because if you try to get 100 bucks more and nobody goes in and you know, you lose one month vacancy, which is let's say 1200 bucks a month. Divided by 12, that's already 100 bucks. Yeah. You lost. You you're trying to get a, you screwed. Yeah. So you'd be better off putting the the, the, the lower price, rent it the, the day or within a week. And then when you have a good tenant, slowly increase the rent down the road. So do not overprice your rentals. If you happen to overprice them, adjust quickly because rental market is, is way faster than the sales market. You cannot wait 30 days to adjust. If you don't have anything done within a, within a week, no showings, nothing, uh, adjust the price. On every five, six showings, you need to get a, a, a lease signed and, and oh. ready to go. So this is the first. Don't get greedy. Just get person in quickly because one month vacancy is just equal. So when you do your calculations, don't look at per month. Look at for the year. When you do budgeting, look at for the year. Great point. All right. Second thing is the turnover between tenants. That's where the efficiency goes away. So what we do is with our processes, we want the tenants to give us 60-day notice. So we probably start the conversation of renewal three months before it ends. Mm, This is a big one. Yes. So 60 days, the tenant has to give us a notice, 60 days before they leave. So at the moment the, the tenant gives a notice, the property manager has to go and review the property, do inspect the property personally, and makes a list of what is going to need to be repaired for the turnover. Picks the right vendors and schedules the work the day after the tenant moves out. Mm. So this way, you don't have to tenant move out. Then you go check the property. Then you decide what to do. Then you start looking for vendors. Then you're scheduling. So instead of a week, 
you're going into three weeks. So be proactive with it. If you know the tenant's moving out, get a head, get a heads up. So then the second they move out, you can get that property cleaned up and right on the rental market to avoid. Yeah, this. but you have to go and check the property, make a punch list and get it ready. At the same time, once you do the checklist and you see that the property will be ready to be fixed and back on the market within a, a week after they move out, then you put the market, the property on the market for for rent. Don't do it too early, like three months ahead, maybe no more than two months or one month and a half before the property is really available because most tenants look for from a, a month and a two ahead. They don't yeah. look at six months ahead. No, it's, it's, yeah, very, it's a rare uncommon. case. So, yeah, it's a rare case. So get ready for turnover maintenance and start marking the property in advance. And don't so, overprice the unit. Don't overprice the unit. So here's the other thing that most property managers don't do and uh, is just what we do in our practices. Our leases are not 12 months. Our leases are based on when the 12 month is ending. So we do not end leases in July and August, and we do not end leases in November and December and beginning of January. Because in Arizona, November, December, it's holidays. Nobody wants to move. It's very hard to find a new tenant to move in into the property. Yeah. So if the tenant, if you cannot find a tenant, that means that the property is going to stay vacant for longer. So what we do is we avoid these months. If the lease ends October 30th or November 30th, we push it two more months until end of January, which mm -hmm. is becomes 14 months lease. That's smart. So this way you're avoiding the bad times. Let's say New York, there's areas that it's cold, snow, you know, nobody wants to move that, right? Correct? No, not in the winter. Yeah. That makes sense. Spring is the best time for leases, right? Depends on the depends on the market. Yeah, market. Yeah, uh, spring usually is. But and the other time we don't end leases is July and August here in Phoenix. Summer, peak summer. Yeah, people move usually, but this is strictly for us because we want to take vacation. We want to. We don't want to have too much work happening during these two months. So it's it applies the same for you. If you have multiple rentals, you don't want to be dealing with turnover repairs, management, and oh, things sorry. like that, applications. Give yourself two months easy just handling the usual stuff. Yeah, do it in the fall. That makes sense. Yeah. No, do it in the fall. So here's in the last point that it most people don't realize. Our leases do not end on 30th. When do they end? Our leases in the middle of the month on 15th. Interesting. Because if you follow our rules and start preparing the property 60 days prior to the tenant moving out. You're already prepared to do the repairs within a week. You're already marketing the property and you have a tenant ready. So when you say to the tenant, hey, the property is gonna be ready on fifth. You just have to pay me 25 days prorated in advance. The tenant's gonna say, ah, I have until first, 25 days is too much to pay, I don't really don't want to pay 25 days in advance because I'm yeah. not going to be able to move. But if you say, hey, the lease ends on 15th, by 20th, I'll be ready for you to move in. It's only 10 days. It's only 10 days. And 10 says, okay, 10 days, I can afford that because I will need, it's easy for me to move. Yeah, so they're this, transitioning in and out of there. 
So with this little trick, moving the, the end of the lease in the middle of the month, yeah. you are increasing your chances of closing that gap of vacancy. But that thing doesn't work unless you implement the 60-day rule with in- inspection and scheduling and marketing in advance. Those are such good tips, man. I mean, there's so much we can cover on this. Like, so the, the thing I loved about the show today, the part one, was everything that you shared, and I mean this, was practical and people can apply this right away anywhere in the country. So like- Yes, wanted- this is across the board, all the same. You can interview your property managers in this way and say, hey, what's your policy of this? What do you do about this? In this way, you can, you can compare what I'm telling you right now as a property manager, owner of property management company and what the person you you want to hire you know because for me I, I we keep high standards because i am my rental properties are in my property management company they are managed exactly the same way like the clients yeah so i set the rules for me to like him exactly <laughs> so I can, you gotta I can save money exactly so our property managers handle my properties exactly the same way like everybody else there's no difference so that's a big I, thing with property. I go there and, and most of these rules I came up with experience in trying to cut cost and efficiency. You know that. So that makes sense. So we're gonna do part two before we end the show today. If someone's in Phoenix and they want you to manage their properties, especially because you actually have your own property, so you know what you're doing. What is the name of your property management company? How can they get in touch? ProX Realty Management and it online. The best thing is online, Arizona ProX. .com. ArizonaProX.com. And then if they want to learn how to be a rental property savage, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you directly? Uh, this, Yeah, just my cell phone. You know, 602-405-8156. Call me. Or soon we're going to have the website burronsteroids.com. That will be coming, Burr on Steroids. Burr on you know, steroids. That, yeah, this, you know, we make people millionaires. You made me people. one. Yep. <laughs> so listen... We're going to do part two. People will reach out to you if they're interested in the property management company, or I highly recommend checking out Augie's coaching program. It's phenomenal. It's helped me a ton. Now I got my rental property system dialed in. Thanks to Augie. He really blew my brain on how to do this the right way. So please reach out to Augie. He's a wealth of knowledge. And we will do part number two, and we will go even deeper with this rental Let's topic. do it, man. Appreciate Thank your time you. today. Thank you for listening to an episode of the Real Estate Investing Fast Track. I hope you got a lot of value from this specific episode. And there are a few takeaways that you're able to gather from this to implement in your business so you can be a more successful real estate investor. So if you did get value from the show, if you could do me a favor and leave me a review on iTunes, it would really mean a lot to me. That's how we keep growing the show and getting great guests is because people see the reviews. They see that we have a high quality show and they want to contribute as a guest. So that would be great. Also, if you got value, if you could share the show on social media, that would be great because that is how people see this besides the reviews. So once again, if you did get value, if you could do me a favor and leave me a review on iTunes and share the show on social media, it would really mean a lot to me and I'll see you on the next episode.